thanks to Cabbage for supporting Motleyful Answers. Get the money you need to run your small business today. Go to cabbage.com to get started. Credit lines subject to review and change. Individual requests for capital are separate installment loans issued by Celtic Bank, member FDIC. Also, thanks to Zapier for supporting Motleyful Answers. Zapier is the easiest way to automate your work. It connects all your business software and handles work for you so you can focus on the things that matter most. Try Zapier free by going to our special link, zapier.com fool. This is Motleyful Answers. I'm Allison Southwick. I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp. <laughs> Personal finance expert here at the Molly Pool. Hi, everybody. In today's episode, we're joined by Jennifer Petrilieri, the author of Couples That Work. She's going to share her research and advice to help dual earning households navigate the tough transitions that can upend a relationship. All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Pool Answers. So, bro. What's up? Oh, I got a few things. Do you have three things? Uh, as a matter of fact, I do. Knew it. Yeah, there you go. Number one. The swelling and inflammation of healthcare expenses. So, the Kaiser Family Foundation released the latest results from its annual employer survey and found that, on average, the cost of employer provided health insurance for a family is now $20,576. So, that's up 5% from last year. 71% is covered by the employer, the rest is covered by the employee. While the overall cost has increased 5%, actually, the employee's share increased 8%. And we've seen this recently over the last few years where employers are shifting more of the costs onto the employee. So, once again, we see another year of the cost of health care going up much higher than overall inflation, which these days is less than 2%. In fact, the Wall Street Journal had uh, a little stat there that said that in 1999, the cost to provide health insurance for a family was $5,791 in 1999. So I put that into an inflation calculator on the internet and if healthcare only went up at the rate of inflation, today it would cost $9,000 a year. So it wouldn't have even doubled. But of course no, it's over $20,000 a year, so it's quadrupled. Mm. Um, and so I, we've talked about this before. We've talked about in particular prescription drugs. It's a very long conversation, but the basic basically like this can't go on forever where healthcare just eats up more and more of our economy. Uh, that's a topic for maybe even another show. But I can tell you one thing that you shouldn't do, and that is you should not skimp on your insurance, which brings us to a Bloomberg article which told the story of David Diaz. So the Diaz family did have insurance, but it was short-term medical insurance, which was allowed under the um, Affordable Care Act as sort of a bridge between jobs. You could have it for no more than three months. Trump administration changed that so that you could have it for up to a year and then keep rolling it for three years. So many people decide, well, I'm going to get these, this lower cost insurance uh, and save some money. What happened to David Diaz? Well, he had a heart attack. Hmm. Thought he had insurance. Turns out he it's not going to cover that. Oof. What's the bill for having a heart attack for this family? Two hundred and forty-four thousand four hundred forty-seven dollars and ninety-one cents. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. They also had this just quirky little tidbit in the article. So one of the insurance companies that offers this type of policy is HIIQ. <laughs> According to the article, there was a guy named Charlie Butler, truck driver. Gets cancer, HIIQ won't cover it. So, from the article, they, so he sues the insurance company. According to the article, during a deposition the following year, Lee Henning, an attorney for HIIQ, tried to undermine Butler's claim that the debt had left him anxious. If you need money so badly, Henning asked, why doesn't your wife get a second job? 
He reminded Butler that the Bible says a wife should be a good helpmate. Could you imagine that came out in a lawsuit? Anyways, HIIQ fired that guy. Anyways, the lesson here is when it comes to health insurance, you don't get what you don't pay for. A low-cost policy could be low-cost for a reason. Number two, funds distribute capital pains. So throughout the year, your mutual fund manager is going to be buying and selling stocks, bonds, whatever the fund is invested in. If they generate a capital gain on those sales, to the extent that they exceed losses, they have to get paid by somebody. And those are distributed to the people who own the fund, even if you didn't sell your shares in the fund. So there you are, being a well-behaved buy-and-hold investor, and boom, you get hit with a tax bill for an investment you're still holding. Now, if you hold your funds in an IRA or 401k, other tax-advantaged type of account, it's fine. But this could be a particularly rough year for those of you who hold funds in a regular taxable account, especially from act for those actively managed funds. And that's one of the points made in a couple of recent Morningstar articles, one by Christine Benz and the other by Russ Kennel. The problem is, actively managed funds have been seeing huge outflows. And when a fund gets lots of requests for redemptions, they have to sell a lot of investments to raise the cash to meet the redemption requests. So a lot of funds are probably going to be making these distributions at the end of the year. So if you hold a mutual fund out in a taxable account, does that mean you should sell the fund before that happens? Generally, no, if you like the fund, because when you sell the fund, you're also going to generate capital gains. But if you were thinking of selling the fund anyhow, maybe a time to pare back. Uh, but also, you should wait until the distributions at the end of the year if you're going to buy into a new fund. And number three, Wall Street brokers missed the index funds memo. And that is a headline from a Wall Street Journal article by Randall Smith. So we just discussed why many people are dumping their actively managed funds in favor of index funds. Why? Well, it can be pretty tough to beat the index fund. However, brokers are still mostly sticking with actively managed funds. So the article quoted report released last month by Cerulli Associates, which found that brokers at four major Wall Street firms have just 29% of their clients manage fund assets in passive index funds. Majority are still in active funds. And it's even a lower percentage in passive index funds for smaller and regional brokerages. Um, Compare that to overall, about 40% of assets are invested in index funds these days. And in August, it topped 50% for all U.S. stock funds. And we actually mentioned that in one of our previous episodes. So why are brokers not joining the exodus to index funds, or at least not as much? You can take a guess. It comes down probably to money. There are many reasons, but generally speaking, you're more likely to get commissions and other payments from the actively managed fund families. The article uh, quoted Doug Black, who is a consultant who works with wealthy families, and said that the big firm's active tilt is partly a legacy of Wall Street, the relationships that these folks have with these big fund families, these actively managed fund families, but also that higher fee active managers often make pay-to-play payments to big firms. And indeed, according to the article, the last, the two of the largest Wall Street firms, Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch, curtailed their brokers' use of mutual funds from Vanguard because they wouldn't do these pay-to-play payments. Um, as we regularly point out, on the show, uh, not all actively managed funds are bad. I have several of my own. We have several in the Motley Fool's 401k. There are plenty of good ones. But if you have a broker and they have put you mostly in actively managed funds, you want to make sure that they have done it because those are the best funds for you and not the best for them. And that, Allison, is what's up. 
Thanks to Cabbage for supporting Motley Fully Answers. If you own a small business, you've got your hands full with managing inventory, covering payroll, and doing a hundred other things. That's why Cabbage created a simple, modern way for businesses to access up to $250,000 of credit. Cabbage's application process is online and takes just minutes to complete and get a decision. If your business qualifies, you can access the amount you need right away and withdraw more funds whenever you need extra capital. Cabbage has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and has provided over 200,000 small businesses with access to funding. I'm no entrepreneur, Robert Brokamp, <laughs> but I know that you are, and you helped your daughter. You did. You helped your daughter with her, did. with her goop business or whatever it was called. Her slime business on her Etsy. Her slime business on Etsy. When she needed more capital, she just had to go to dad. But business owners don't have that. They don't have access to capital. So don't send me an email. I'm not going to give you money. Not when there's cabbage. <laughs> Not when there's cabbage, right? So you can get the money you need to run your small business today. Go to cabbage.com to get started. That's K A B B A G E.com. Credit lines subject to review and change. Individual requests for capital are separate installment loans issued by Celtic Bank, member FDIC. Lucky I'm in love with my best friend. Lucky to have been where I have been. Lucky to be coming Petrilieri is an associate professor of organizational development at INSEAD. Her book, Couples That Work, looks at the experiences of couples around the globe and how they thrive in their relationships and at work. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks. So, I was on the old Facebooks the other day, and a friend of mine um, had posted she was reflecting on her past 15 years of marriage with her husband. She had all these pictures of them from when they were younger, and it's so great. And she talked about the idea that you and your partner don't really have one marriage, but instead you have three or four marriages with the same person because you grow and change together. And the people that you were when you got married are not the same people that you are as you mature and as you are today. And I thought, well, that timing is pretty perfect as I am reading your book, um, because that's really at the crux of, of what you wrote about in your research, the idea that people change their wants, their needs, both professionally and personally. And there are tools that you can use to navigate these tough transitions. So, how did you decide to start writing this book? It really came from my personal experience. So, you know, I'm in a working couple like most couples out there. And um, we were at a point in our lives when, you know, things were tough. We had two under twos, we're both striving to get ahead in our careers. And, um, you know, to be fair, my husband did his very much his fair share of the washing, the cooking, the cleaning, all that sort of stuff. But we felt like we were hanging on by the skin of our teeth. And, um, and you know, I did what every good academic girl does. I went to the library and tried to find books, advice, anything that could help. And really, I found either stuff that told me how we should divide up the laundry mm-hmm. or things about, you know, these power couples who had everything sorted. And this just really was not helpful. And I knew this wasn't just my experience. It was the experience of, you know, my friends, my family, my colleagues, my students. And I really came to the point to say, you know, if no one has done that research, then I'm going to do that and I'm going to write that book. So that was really the motivation. Yeah, and so your book goes into three main transitions that couples are going to go through um, typically. I mean, everyone's different, but you yeah. found that there were some common threads here as you talked to so many different couples. Um, and so let's just get into the first transition. So for most of us, we find a partner, maybe we get married, maybe we move in together. Not a lot changes, it's pretty smooth sailing. 
But then upheaval comes. And you found that was usually in the form of having kids or when one partner opts to take a job elsewhere. Yeah. So essentially, when we first get together, we still have parallel lives, right? We're pursuing our career. We've got our friends. We've just laid on top this wonderful relationship. And life is rosy. And it never stays that way. No, it doesn't. Um, And what tends to kick off that first transition is either a, a great career opportunity, which presents a hard choice, right? I get a job on the other side of the country and of parallel living. You know, do we move together? Do you follow? Do we go our separate ways? A baby, which anyone who has kids will know that really does end parallel lives. Yeah. <laughs> or, or maybe if we get together later in life, like there's a decision, do we blend families from an old relationship? Again, real end to parallel lives. And at that stage, couples have to face a fundamental question. How do we make this work? Right? How can we combine our lives into one joint path in a way that we can both go after the career goals we have, but also have a decent relationship and, you know, a healthy family around that. Mm-hmm. And it's a tough decision. It is. It is. So you um, had a piece in the Wall Street Journal that I read, and we talked about this before we turned the microphones on. Because um, a lot of the articles so far about your book have really zeroed in on the the couples contracting. And so people really focus in on that cold word contract. I mean, if you read yeah. the comment section in the Wall Street Journal piece that you did, they're, you know, they're getting all cranky about how wine in my day. <laughs> we just listen to each other and love. And what's this with the kids and their contracts? And, so, and they totally missed the point, because I'm sure they didn't read past the headline, that um, what you're talking about here is is really having deepful, thoughtful conversations that lead to a mutual understanding about what makes your partner tick. Exactly. And I think the problem with that first transition is we tend to be rabbits in the headlight, right? We, we reach this decision point, we go into panic mode, and we almost always think practicalities, right? Childcare, geography, spare bedrooms, these kind of decisions. And of course, we need to fix the practicalities. But what I found very strongly was couples who just focused on that This is the path to hell because they're not doing it with any logic in mind, right? They're putting the practicalities before the principles and the logic of their relationship. So um, couple contracting, and when I talk about contract, I mean a psychological contract, not a legal one that we sign in blood and, you know, know, put in a a safe forever. I mean, if that works for you as a couple, okay, That's fine, fine, but that's not what I meant. Um, It's really a way of discussing, look, what are the things that really matter to us? And once we figured that out, then we can make choices more mindfully and layer on the practicalities. And those things, they may well be career goals, right? This is really important to me to pursue. It might be things like, okay, how can we structure our lives in a way that gives us enough time for other stuff on the side? It might be about financial stability. How can we build financial stability so maybe five years down the road I can try entrepreneurship or I can do a career move? might be about the type of family we want, right? I really want us to be a, a couple that's deeply rooted in our community. So how are we going to set up life that way? And the couples who started there really did much better because they had this set of principles that they could then make decisions from and they could really honour each other's you know, desires and ambitions in their relationship. Yeah, when I was reading, as you're talking about how to have this conversation, you talked about a conversation around values, boundaries, fears. Um, and I was like, oh, yes, this is all great. This is all would be a wonderful conversation. But it feels like you would need a third person in the room to really nudge you both forward into what do, but what do you really mean by what you value? What do you really mean by you want to give our kids the best childhood possible? Um, 
So, yeah, so, yeah. So I don't have much of a question so, there, but that's what it so sounded like. I you think, need a, someone else in the room I to help you. I think there is a common um, feeling among many people is is that these conversations are frightening, right? And I might get them wrong. Um, but first of all, it's not just one conversation, right? It's really how do I build a habit of talking about these things? So it's not that if we don't agree on everything tonight, you know, this is never going mm-hmm. anywhere. And and secondly, is that you know. In many ways, these are the conversations we, we all crave, right? Is how do we talk about what we really want out of life and plan this? Um, and my experience when people start having them is they actually really quite enjoy them. Because, you know, this is the stuff that matters to us, right? This is what life is made of. Um, and so I think it's just about biting the bullet and starting. And some people sometimes say to me, OK, do we need to go away for a romantic weekend and like hire a log cabin? I'm like, well, if that's what you want to do, that's, that's great. Fine, yeah. But really, you just need, you know, half an hour, 20 minutes at the end of the day, you know, with your mug of hot tea or glass of wine and just spend some undivided attention with each other starting to talk this stuff through. It's not rocket science. Mm-hmm. It's really about have are you going to invest in your relationship? And it's really funny because when we think about our careers, we don't think twice about investment, right? We don't think twice about taking some time to sit down and think, what's the vision for my career? You know, how many times do you think, what's the vision for my relationship? You know, we don't think about how we're going to invest in our relationship. And yet we know over time that this is the thing that matters more than anything else in our lives to our happiness, to our long-term fulfillment, and to our to our health, right? We know that our health is very determined on our relationships as well. So it's really about switching our mindset and thinking about investing in the relationship. All right, let's move on to the, the second transition. Um, and... Why don't you tell us a story um, that you relay in your book about Wolfgang and Heidi, which is like the most, isn't it like, isn't that great? It's like their stories came out of a German folktale. I love it. <laughs> Wolfgang and Heidi. I got to choose the Did pseudo names. Did you house? Yeah, Did no. you? I got to choose the pseudo names for all I the couples it. and it was just so nice. Yeah. That. Like- um, yeah. So Wolfgang and Heidi, the reason I love their story, and it's interesting you pick it up, so many people pick up mm-hmm. their story because it's so typical, mm. right, is that they'd gone through their 20s and 30s, like many of us, re- in real striving mode, right? They're building their careers, they're building their relationship, they were also building a young family. And they took a choice which is a traditional choice in that his career took priority. She still had a good career, but she took more of the slack at home. And he took took up more of the breadwinner role. Now, they still both worked full time. They had full careers. But that's how they split it. And there came a point, for them, it was in their early 40s, where both of them felt a little bit ill at ease with their choices. And this is really classic because in our 20s and 30s, the path we take is always a combination between what we really want and social expectations, right? You know, your parents think you'd be a good doctor or a good lawyer and lo and behold, that's what you do. Or there's some cool companies that everyone at college is applying to and that's what you do. So this path, and it sometimes serves us well and it served Wolfgang and Heidi well. They they were doing well, they were enjoying themselves, they were growing a lovely family. But oftentimes at that period of mid-career, we take a step back and think, is this really the path we want? And the answer for both of them was No. Um, in different directions, right? For Heidi, she'd invested a lot in the family and she was still ambitious and she felt, you know, I really want my shot of pushing a bit harder in my career. And she was someone who had a lot of potential. She was often getting tapped for management roles was, but was kind of holding herself back because of that. And Wolfgang was in a very different position. He'd been really pushing ahead on the management track 
And he had discovered a passion for for coaching. And he was like, I would just love to give it a shot to be an independent coach. But in the arrangement they were before, that was not possible, right? He was bringing in most of the income. He couldn't afford, quote unquote, to transition. And Heidi couldn't afford to step up because she was taking that role. And so for them, the the solution for both of them was intertwined, right? They needed each other to shift so they could shift themselves. And of course, that solution sounds obvious when I say it like that, but it takes a lot for couples to get to that realization. And it can be a period, this second transition, of quite heartbreaking turmoil for couples. Because what happens is when, when our partner starts questioning their careers and their lives and their life structure, it's pretty threatening, right? Because we can think, my goodness, is this my fault? Is there something wrong with the relationship? And often couples really start to unravel at this point. And I think the core of it is that the support we need in our couple at this time is quite different from the support we sometimes think of in a good relationship. So if we think of what is a good supportive relationship, we tend to think of, it's a very British expression here, but you know, the tea and sympathy model, right? That my partner's a good partner if they plump up my self-esteem and make me feel good about myself. That's lovely. Who doesn't like that, right? We all like that. But at this stage and this transition, that's not the support we need. Because what that support does is keep us close and keep us in the comfort zone. But when we're questioning, what do I really want to do? What's my direction? We need to get out there and test new things and explore new fields. And so what I find at this transition point is it's a very different conversation couples need to have. It's really about how can we support each other in a different way? And instead of having this kind of real close, comforting support, we need a bit of a loving kick up the ass, if I can put it that way. (laughs) Now, there's a technical term for this, which is we need a secure base relationship, which means, yes, we have that comfort and support, but we also have the push away to say, you know, you need to get out of the comfort zone, which means the comfort zone of our relationship, and out and look at different options and think of different ways forward. But it's very counterintuitive, right? Because when we're feeling a bit wobbly, a bit threatened, our instinct is to pull our partner close. And this is exactly the opposite, right? It's almost a push away from the relationship. But what I found, and this is what Heidi and Wolfgang did really well, was when they could bake that kind of support into their relationship, both partners fared better because both could go and kind of explore and really think through these questions of direction. And then they could come back to the security together and figure out the way forward. So it's a very different way of thinking about how we support each other. There was um, another couple in this part of the book that you talked about where the um, the wife wanted to go out and explore more. And so she was staying out late at networking events and she was meeting new people. And Her husband at home was feeling, it sounded like, I mean, he was getting jealous of this time away. He was feeling like she's off exploring new things and I'm still staying here at home helping keep the home fires burning or whatever. And so it feels like this is um, an opportunity that that push and pull can be extremely fraught. And also with these couples in this chapter, it also felt seemed like it took a really long time for them to even have these conversations of, I think I want to explore more in my professional life. And so this whole time, the other partner was sensing this tension that maybe they're thinking they're having an affair or maybe there's other things like there's all these this. It just sounds like a really fraught time. And you talk about how this is a really great opportunity to get divorced. (laughs) That's that's not exactly how I put it in the book, just to be clear. That phrase exactly that way. But if you're going to do I mean, I think there's two things. There is a reality. If we look at divorce statistics, they're not stable across time, right? There's peaks and there's definitely a peak at, the, at this time. 
time of life. But I think silence is the biggest killer in couples here um, because you know, our partner always knows when something's bothering us, whether we say or not. And I think the reason p- people hold back is for many couples, you know, life is kind of okay. And so you can feel guilty, like, who am I to rock the boat? You know, we've struggled to get here. We're in a decent position. You know, I should just be satisfied with my lot. The problem with that rationale is it doesn't make the questions go away, right? So they build up and build up until they become these these kind of really big issues, which they don't need to be if, um, if they're talked about earlier on. But the other thing is, I think in this day and age, we really, as a society, we rush to make decisions, So there's a sense that, okay, I'm not happy in my career. Okay, I'm going to spend the next two months networking. And then by month three, I'm going to have transitioned and we're all going to be fine. What this transition is really about is is more of a a deep psychological transition. It's like, how do I build a path that's my own? And, you know, it's a little bit like pregnancy, right? It takes nine months and it's not good for it to be completed earlier. I think there's something about this transition that it just takes a little bit of time where you need to stew in your own juices and really, really explore different options before rushing through it. And if you rush through it, there's this premature birth, if if I can use that analogy, that's not particularly helpful. So there's another example in the couple who do just that. They switch quickly, and then lo and behold, six months later, they're like, "Mm, that was maybe not the best idea. So it's really like, can we sit with the, the struggle, knowing that, you know, something will birth at some point that will be helpful for us. Yeah. Um, obviously, since we're talking about careers, um, there's the financial aspect to it, which is, of course, what I latch on to um, as well. And you talk about in this transition about the importance of having made good financial decisions in your life, because then that actually gives you the options to explore new paths. If you're not on a good financial foot or footing or any of that, um, you don't get, you don't, you need to just keep working and you don't get to go off and explore and go eat, pray, love your way around. (laughs) (laughs) So I think there's two things in there. Yeah. I mean, one of the huge benefits of being a working couple rather than one, you know, one homemaker, one breadwinner is you do have a little bit more financial freedom. I mean, even with that, there's very few of us who can eat, pray, love our way around the world. Let's be clear. But it gives you a slight bit more wiggle room. So I think that's important. But I also think it's important we get away from this black-white thinking that the only way we can transition is to take a year and sit in a cave and meditate. And then, you know, I don't know, the angels will sing and suddenly we'll know the way forward. Mm -hmm. That's not actually what the research shows how it happens. How it happens most commonly is when people are actually staying with their job and doing side projects, Right. So I'm spending some time going to networking events in the evening. I'm reading books about different things. I'm talking to other people. Maybe I take a mini sabbatical, you know, the most. Maybe I take on a voluntary project or a a kind of project on the side. It's actually these things when you're still in your current life, but you're adding things on top. This is actually what the research shows is the most successful way to make these transitions. Now, it would be lovely if we all had a year to go to Italy and India and wherever else, but that may not actually be the most helpful thing in the end. 
Thanks to Zapier for supporting Motley Fool Answers. If you're running your own business, think about the hours you spend moving information from one program to another because software systems don't easily work together. Well, now they do automatically, thanks to Zapier. Zapier is built to automate your work and it connects all your business software and handles work for you so you can focus on the things that matter most. And they work with an insane number of programs that you already use, like Slack and Google Drive and Microsoft Office and Zoom and Salesforce. Zapier's easy-to-use tech gets these apps to talk together and get along automatically. So, for example, you can use their already set up Zaps, they call them, to have Outlook email or Gmails automatically go into Slack, or have Outlook emails turn into Trello cards, or get a Slack update when a Google Sheet is updated. There are so many options, you probably need to see it for yourself. And you can. Right now, through November, try Zapier free by going to zapier.com slash fool. That's Z-A-P-I-E-R.com slash fool for your free 14-day trial. Zapier.com slash fool. Mm, it's always better when we're together. Yeah, we'll look at them stars when we're together. Let's move on to the third transition. Um, in the two previous phases... They seemed, and you talked, you touched on this a bit. They seemed very much influenced by the expectations that we put on ourselves and that the world puts on us. You need to be super successful in your career. You need to be a perfect parent. Um, but as you reach your fifties and you kind of peak in your career, and the kids move on, um, you kind of lose a sense of identity, uh, and you also sort of realize you're running out of time. Ugh. So, <laughs> so this is obviously a kind of frightening period, but it also sounds really exciting and a great opportunity to do crazy new things together. Yeah, it is. And you know, the generation now and and our generations are enjoying opportunities that no generation have enjoyed before. So for two reasons. One is our lives are getting longer, which means our careers are getting longer, which means that period in between us having more freedom, right? Maybe the mortgage has paid off, the kids have left home, we've not got college fees, and retirement is actually much longer than it has been in the past. And at the same time, the structure of careers is changing. So we know there's much more options for flexibility, whether it's freelancing work, the rise of the gig economy, whether it's portfolio career, whether it's, you know, trying entrepreneurship. There's all sorts of options that our parents and our grandparents just never had. And so what I saw at this phase was couples really went in one of two quite starkly different directions. Either they got stuck with the loss you know, the loss of my, you know, I'm no longer the rising star in the organization. Um, I remember one guy said to me, you know, the thing which was a real wake up was I went for a promotion and realized I was up against my protege who was 10 years younger than me. Mm. Huge wake up call, right? And that's, so sometimes couples get stuck with that sense of loss and also often loss in the relationship, right? They may have been sweeping those resentments under the carpet for years and suddenly it's just the two of them left in the house and we got to face this and that's pretty tough. There were also couples who felt that sense of loss, but also saw these opportunities and really did some quite creative things. And, um, you know, many of the couples actually started doing some things together. Now, it wasn't that they all, you know, formed companies and worked together all the time, but they often did little side projects together that sometimes took them back to their youth when they brought together. So there were some lovely stories of couples at this phase really having this huge reinvention that quite frankly, previous generations have just not been open to them. So I think there is excitement about this phase, um, even though there are some tough issues to wrestle with in our couples. 
Um, the schadenfreude-prone part of me really enjoyed in your book how you shared a lot of stories and a lot of anecdotes about couples who, from the outside, seem to have it all. But then, after you're talking to them and putting it in your book, I get to see that they're actually kind of falling apart a little bit. Um, and so, can you talk a little bit more about the the myth of the power couple and how kind of it seems like at this point in your in your life in your fifties, you kind of are like, uh, I don't know if I need to be a power couple. I don't need I don't need this anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think the power the word the term power couple is just awful because it gives this ideal state as if these couples have everything which no couple does i mean this is ridiculous i think there are couples that work though and i think the question is what do these couples that work have that the couples that don't work don't have and i think a lot of this comes down to can we maintain a balance of power in the relationship So very often what happens over time is that power balance shifts to one person. And when I talk about power in a couple, I mean, do I have the opportunity to go for the things I really want to do? Now, this isn't about necessarily succeeding them, but it's like, does the couple support me in in reaching those desires. So let me give you an example. And of course, this is not necessarily linked to how much I earn or how much powerful or prestigious job I have. So there's one couple... um, I followed and she was the CEO of a mid-sized company, you know, and she was sometimes listed in these power women, you know, things. But in the couple, she really didn't have power at all. And the way she talked about her career was, you know, I know I've reached an objectively successful place, but this is not where I wanted to be. You know, there were other avenues I wanted to take. But every day I was just kind of running on this treadmill essentially to um, keep the family going. And so my husband could pursue you know, his career dreams. And I think that was really interesting because then I started to think, well, how did you get there, right? Because now she's at this stage, as she said, at the first third transition and her husband can see it as well. But of course it took two to tango, right? And of course it starts with one small thing and, oh, you know, well, let's sweep it under the carpet. Let's not worry about that. And suddenly in a couple, a pattern develops that one is the giver and the other is the taker. And very often it's such a slow dynamic, a bit like the boiling frog, that we don't realise until five, ten years later there's a real sense of power imbalance, which of course brings the resentment and the guilt into a couple. And I think it's very easy from the outside to look at those couples and think, oh, it's, it's her or his fault, you know, they've been taking. It's never like that. It's always, you know, this slow dynamic, this slow burn, And couples get into that situation because they've not been talking about this stuff, because they have been sweeping it under the carpet. So our listeners can clearly figure out that you're British. Yep. Your husband's Italian. Yes. You live in France. Yep. But all our American listeners can tie into what you're saying, because really this is international, at least in the Western developed world. Yeah, and even not in the Western developed world. So my sample um, for the research was global. There were a lot of American couples, but also European and Asian and uh, Middle East and African. And I think one of the things which was most surprised me in the research was how these dynamics really played out across the globe. And, um, you know, the issues of power, who gets what they want, um, how do we struggle through figuring out what we want, how do we face these identity questions, are pretty universal. Of course, there are some cultural dynamics, and these tend to pop up around children, you know, who takes care of the children. In many, in many cultures, the grandparents step in a lot more than mm. they perhaps would in the US and, and where I'm from in the UK. But apart from that, it's surprising how common the dynamics are across the world. It is kind of crazy how um, 
within essentially a generation, women went from being the ones who stayed home and raised the kids to being the ones who also go to work and also and so well, yes and no mm-hmm. because if we you know it's funny we think of that traditional mm-hmm. structure as the breadwinner homemaker but that's not actually the traditional structure at all it's a blip in the long course of human history so until the industrial revolution the idea that a woman would stay home and take care of the family was laughable right all members of the family contributed from kind of five years old. So in the in the farms, etc. Mm-hmm. Everyone is working, um, and really the industrial revolution changed that. So there's only really a period of less, a little bit less than a hundred years where that model existed, and now we're back to in fact what is the norm throughout human history. And it's interesting when you look at tribal societies, right? Um, there's research being done on tribal societies who, um, the kind of hunter-gatherer societies. And if we think of work in terms of how many calories we gather um, a day, it's it, women actually contribute a little bit more work. It's, it's about 60-40 in terms of that. So the traditional model has always been working couples. We've just had a blip in the last, you know, in that period from the Industrial Revolution through to really the Second World War, because the Second World War was the start of the shift back, right? Because a lot of the men were fighting, so the women took up those roles. And it's really that small period where we had that model, which we now think of as the traditional model, which actually isn't the traditional model at all. Um, But yeah, so we're really going back to where we have been for most of the, you know, the existence of humans on Earth. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Your book is full of, I mean, we covered all the transitions and um, these different phases, but there's, it's a very well-organized book. And thank it's you. got lots of, like, I was like, oh, she, this is very well-organized. Um, and so that for our listeners out there, there's tons of uh, tips and tools and advice for having these conversations and navigating all of these transitions. Um, so again, the book is Couples That Work by Jennifer Petrilieri. I nail it. You nailed it. You <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> Thank you again. And we look forward to seeing what your next book is going to be about. Do you already know? Thank you. I am actually finishing off a children's book that I've written with my oh, kids. Oh, that's outstanding. Yeah. Oh, great. That had one uh, boring day on the beach that started. <laughs> <laughs> Let us know when that's available. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's the show. It's edited contractually by Rick Angdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.